If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello there, and welcome to episode 100 of the Leading Learning Podcast. That's right, you heard me correctly, episode 100. And to commemorate this momentous occasion, we do have something special lined up. But first... We want to thank Your Membership, the podcast sponsor for the third quarter of 2017. Your Membership's learning management system is specifically designed for professional education with a highly flexible and intuitive system that customizes the learning experience. Your Membership's LMS seamlessly integrates with key systems to manage all of your educational content formats in one central location while providing powerful tools to create and deliver assessments, evaluations, and learning communities. You can find out more about Your Membership at yourmembership.com. And we are very grateful to Your Membership. They've been a consistent sponsor here. It does take quite a bit of time and effort, particularly to get to the point of having 100 episodes of a podcast. So having that support has been has been really critical. Now, we usually offer up a resource at this part of our introduction. This time around, uh, we're going to break from that just a little bit because we're hoping that you will go back and explore past episodes of the podcast, you know, whether those are ones you haven't listened to or ones you have and you just want to go back and review. We're big fans of review and reflection. Uh, frequent listeners here on, on Leading Learning know that. So we, we encourage you to do that. And to, to get to those episodes, all you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash all hyphen episodes. And that'll get you to the full list of the whole 100. And while you're there, we would really like to make a strong appeal in this episode of all episodes. You can think of this as sort of a 100th birthday present to us. We would really, really like for you to go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. And there you will see how you can give a rating and a review to the podcast. And it really doesn't take much time. You get there. It'll click you through to the right place. You put the number of stars, which we're assuming is going to be five, for the podcast. And just write a quick review. It doesn't have to be much. Just be, It can be something like, you know, I've been listening. I get high value out of this. Great job. Something like that. You can, you can make the words what you want, but it doesn't have to be war and peace. It can just be a quick sentence or two about the fact that you find the podcast valuable. So go, please, to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. If you have to pause for a moment to go do that, that's okay. We'll be back here. You back? Okay. Hope you went off and did that review. And now, it's hard to believe, but we are at episode 100 at this point. Yes, and for this special episode, uh, we turn the tables. So it is you and I talking, Jeff, but it is someone else asking the questions. And not just anyone, but a very special someone, Dr. Brian McGowan. Right, definitely not just anyone. Brian was, I think, probably the first person way back when who let us know that he was, in fact, listening to the podcast. He listens to it on his morning walks. And uh, he even told us during the course of this interview that uh, he will tweet while he is uh, listening to the podcast to, to send out things that he's hearing that are you know particularly useful. And uh, sometimes he does as much as a three-tweet walk, and he knows that's a, a good episode. But uh, Brian has actually been on the, the podcast uh, as well a couple of times uh, at this point. That's right. We've been lucky to have him on uh, twice, uh, once to talk about flipped learning, because uh, Brian is really deeply steeped in uh, learning and 
what it takes to, to deliver on effective learning. And he takes a very scientific, methodical, analytical approach to um, understanding what it takes to make learning work. So we talked to him about um, all that he's doing uh, around flip learning. We also talked to him uh, on another episode about his learning actions model. Again, very research-based, very uh, analytically based and, and driven, but it's all about you know, how can we make sure that the learning that we're offering is as effective as possible? That's right. And those are episodes 29 and 45, respectively. And uh, we will put those in the show notes, of course. And of course, everybody listening knows that you just have to go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 100 to get those show notes. That's the, the format for all of our show notes. And yeah, Brian... Brian is the real deal. You know, that doctor uh, is from a PhD. You know, he's got his, his credentials in the world of learning. He does serious research. Uh, he knows his stuff, and he, uh, he practices it as well. So it was, it was a lot of fun to be able to, to talk with him. And, um, you know, we looked at things like uh, some of the episodes that stand out in our mind that help to illustrate the, the themes of the Leading Learning Podcast. We talked about, uh, you know, where we see things going in the future. And uh, we also talked about, um, you know, uh, introducing a new question at the end of the podcast. So you're going to have to listen in to find out what that new question is going to be. And I just want to say, too, that we were truly excited to have uh, Brian uh, involved and interview us. And, you know, there's... uh, something to be said when um, someone like Brian finds that he's getting that much value out of the Leading Learning Podcast. I find it very rewarding. I mean, he clearly is um, an active uh, listener, really has been paying attention to what's been said over the past 99 episodes. And it was really a fun and a very useful experience to have him asking questions of us. And he's a great barometer, too, because we knew if we were just, you know, shoveling out uh uh, junk, so to speak, that somebody like Brian would not be listening to us and would not want to come on and uh, co-host or guest host uh, the podcast. So, Brian, thanks so much for doing it. And without further ado, I think we should just roll right on into this special 100th episode. Hi there, this is Brian McGowan, guest hosting the 100th episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. Um, first, thanks to Jeff and Salisa even for the invitation to host this. I'm, I'm expecting my third timer's jacket to appear someplace in the mail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff and Salisa, uh, you've, been, you've been providing this service to a community for two years now, almost almost to the day. So 100 episodes. Um, I consider myself a little bit of a super fan. Um, we've been talking about this for, gosh, at least a year and a half. I have listened to every podcast of, uh, of the Leading Learning Podcast on my morning walks. It's my habit. It's how I stay in, involved and informed. And so I'm, I know I personally am very much looking forward to this conversation. Um, and uh, I hope that I can do it justice stepping in as a guest host. We're just so glad to have evidence here that somebody does listen to the podcast. <laughs> yes, thanks, Brian. I, I can promise you that I'm not the only one. In fact, um, I've developed a unique skill from listening to the podcast for so long. I can now go for a walk and tweet while listening to a podcast because some of the things that I pick up, I know as I've listened to several of the episodes, I I feel that I need to immediately share. And we can probably go down um, 
through the Twitter stream for the last two years and track almost every walk that I've had or many of the walks that I've had where I've been listening to this podcast. Now, that, that's an interesting uh, form of learning analytics right there. I might have to go back and do that. It's, it's, it's certainly a behavior change and maybe a little performance change there too, as I've learned to walk and type more effectively. So, um, here, I think if you guys are comfortable with it, we've, um, we've got a a brief agenda today. It's going to be one of those best of shows, if you will. So as Salisa, Jeff, and I were preparing for the episode, um, really three, there's three principal areas. I think the episode might cover one. I, very much interested. I hope that everyone appreciates a little bit of the backstory. So we'll, um, Jeff and Salisa, I'll ask you a few questions about the backstory, the origin story, if you will, of the Leading Learning Podcast. Um, And then um, maybe you've done a little homework, I think. We'll challenge you to think through what the the takeaways, the, the biggest pearls that you learned as you were doing the various interviews over the last two years. And then time permitting, I think we should be able to manage this dig in a little bit to the future of the podcast. Does that sound like a, a good plan of action? That sounds fantastic. Right. Um, so maybe we can begin um, two years ago. I would imagine a little bit more than two years ago since the first episode aired September 8th, 2015. Two years ago, the two of you decided that a leading learning podcast um, would have some value to the community. Can you walk us through the origin story a bit? So this is Salisa, and I'll kick things off just by saying that um, you're right. We did start a little before that first episode aired because we had, I think, uh, three or four in the can before we aired the first one just so that we could um, make sure that um, we had things going and, and ready to continue on. And really the impetus in part was around the Leading Learning Symposium that we were launching that October. And so really saw the podcast as a way to start to uh, engage around some of the topics and issues that we saw as being really um, top of mind for those leading um, a learning business at their organization. And um, to be able to talk to some of the people who have um, who have thought about what it means to lead learning, who could provide some insights into what it might take to be effective. And and Jeff, I'm going to give you credit really for the the original idea. So I want you, of course, to add to the origin story in terms of um, you know why a podcast and why then. Well, I'm just a podcast junkie myself, and I, I take particular pleasure in hearing myself on the air. So I, you know, had to <laughs> had to have some way to do that. Um, but no, I, I had started a couple of podcasts previously. One for my Mission to Learn blog, and, and I did a series of podcasts when I was uh, about to launch the um, uh, Leading the Learning Revolution, my book. And uh, actually, when I did the interviews for that book, I captured them as podcasts, and then continued on a little bit before that, and just felt that was it was a great way for for me to do some of the research and learning that I needed to do for that book. And that applied also to the symposium that Salisa was talking about. Uh, And then obviously, you know, a great form of of content marketing, a great way of uh, complementing, in that case, the learning in the book, in this case, the learning that was going to go on at the symposium. And, you know, it was really a very loose form of uh, flipped learning, which I know is an area of uh, focus for you, Brian. So we we just felt, you know, there was a lot of value in it. And we also felt that uh, we like to practice what we preach and we're big advocates of, you know, doing different forms of education, doing different forms of content marketing. We, you know, tell our clients to do that. We tell our audience to do that. So, you know, if we're going to tell people to do that, then we darn well better have experimented with ourselves and, and tried it out. So, so it's interesting. So a lot, four or five different 
value propositions that you guys have stated. And it seems like one's missing. Every episode I hear, I hear the two of you just almost like the passion, the joy of interviewing these thought leaders. So how much, how much is there, is it nerves? Is it, is it just your own hunger to, to learn from these folks? But it seems you really enjoy these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that that joy comes across. I mean, it is for me really a privilege uh, to be able to interview the folks that we talk with. I especially love it when I can um, view some of their work, read some of what they've written, see some of what's out there before I get to talk to them, and really try to come up with what are those questions? What are the things that are interesting to me? What would I like to know more about? And the hope there, of course, is, is if it's interesting to me, if I want to know more about it, hope that the listeners do as well. You know, I, I'll add to that. I was uh, actually just today listening to a podcast because I do listen to a lot of podcasts. And uh, it was uh, an, an interview with Larry King. And he's done uh, close to 60,000 interviews during his career, which is just, you know, dumbfounding to, to think about. Um, but it, you know, made me think about the fact that somewhere along the line in, in doing the podcasting, I realized that. Uh, I liked interviewing people um, that I probably didn't rate myself as the world's best interviewer and that it was something that I really wanted to, to try to get a lot better at. Um, and so I've, I've found as we've gone along with the podcast that I'm, you know, I'm listening to people like Krista Tippett. I'm listening to people like Tim Ferriss and, and how they interview and, and trying to get good at it. And I think they have that passion that you're talking about, Brian. So I'm glad you hear it in, in our voices as well. Yeah, there's there's absolutely no doubt. And with some of those other interviewers or podcasts, it's it's really this open-ended conversation. The way that you guys structure it, you know, you're bringing these thought leaders on who have a specific expertise. And while there's a little bit of, you know, tell us how you see the world, you are getting down to really practical takeaways. So in in some re- in some respects, you have more constraints to the way that you're interviewing these thought leaders, and yet it still comes across like, you know, everyone should be learning. And Salisa, to your point, absolutely, I would suggest that if you think it's something that you really enjoy and you hope others do, I can certainly validate that uh, your your gauge for what's interesting for your audience is very much in keeping with uh, with my level of interest and my passion for the topic, too. So, that's that's it, it's good that there's so many value propositions and that you had so many goals to set out because I'm guessing after two years you've put a little bit of time into this. Do you guys want to pull the curtain back a little bit and tell me or tell us all what what exactly goes into the making of each podcast? Well, I can start in terms of the the interviewing, and so you know at this point we are releasing uh, weekly episodes and um, every you know roughly third episode is is Jeff and I talking about some topic or, or issue and then the other ones are the interviews and we by and large divide and conquer so Jeff's doing you know roughly half the interviews and I'm doing roughly half the interviews and you know we usually set aside um, you know 45 minutes to an hour with whomever we're interviewing and then you know the prep time for that interview is usually, um, you know, maybe twice that, uh, often in terms of just kind of reviewing, um, what information's available. Um, and, and it can even be well beyond that, especially if it's someone whose uh, work we've been following for a, a number of years and, you know, they have some full length books out there and things like that. Um, and, you know, but I have to hand it to, to Jeff to talk more about what happens after we, uh, 
turn off the uh, microphones and, and, you know, head into the production phase of it. And of course, you probably also have other thoughts about the interviewing. Yeah, before we get to the production, I mean, the other thing we do, uh, obviously, is is plan. And, you know, to your point, Brian, we, we try to make sure that we're targeting in on useful topics and useful information and practical takeaways within those topics for everything we do. So that, for me, can be one of the most challenging things is coming up with, you know, particularly who we're going to interview, because, um, you know, the the whole world doesn't think of the concept of the learning business or the market for lifelong learning or aren't necessarily even thinking about lifelong learning in explicit terms every day. You know, so you have to find people who are going to tune into that and who are going to align with what we think listeners want. Um, and then you got to get them. Um, and then of course, you know, Salisa and I are trying to intersperse that with our own conversations that that's actually a little easier because we've been doing this so long that just to come up with a topic that we think is relevant for us to talk about, we can usually do pretty readily. And, um, that's, that's become, pretty much part of the rhythm. But then we've also started trying to add a resource to every episode, something that's, you know, downloadable or viewable or something like that. And, you know, that's, that's kind of another level of challenge we set for ourselves. That, that can be you know, quite challenging sometimes to come up with what it's going to be episode after episode without, without repeating something. We have to keep finding interesting things for people. Um, so that's kind of, the, you know, the planning and the, the interviewing, the content side of it. And, you know, we, we set out from the very beginning, and this was really me thinking about it, having done this before, um, we wanted to keep production absolutely as simple as possible so it wasn't time consuming and that, you know, eventually we could, you know, outsource it, hand it over to somebody else, you know, so we went out and found some good music to put on the, the beginning and the end at, at Royalty Free Music. You know, that's where you'll get our, our theme song from. We just got some decent quality microphones. We don't use anything hugely high end. It's a, uh, an Audio-Technica ATR mics or, or what we use, and those are USB mics that we plug into our laptop. That's what you're listening to right now as you're hearing us talk. And we just plug them both into a, a, a Mac if we're doing it together, or one of us plugs it into our Mac and puts on some headphones and, you know, calls up on Skype, uh, just like we're doing right now, to talk with whoever we're interviewing. There's a, a recording feature uh, called Ecamm that we use to capture the recording. And then we just pull it all down into to GarageBand, and we have a, a very minimal editing approach. I mean, we've already got the intro and the outro pretty much nailed, so we're just, you know, putting in the, the interview content or our, our conversation and uh, maybe doing some minimal editing here and there to get rid of pauses or background noise or that sort of thing. But we definitely, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have a huge production team here and we haven't started outsourcing it yet. That's probably something we'll do at some point. Uh, but just try to keep it really simple. And I, I'd say the production itself um, doesn't take more than an hour or so to do um, per episode, if, if even that. That's the audio production. But that's you know, the, the audio podcast is right, so yeah. much more than that, right. right? So, so now you've got one of the most extensive show note supporting structure. So these, every resource, every time Julie Dirksen mentions something or, um, Cialdini mentions something, well, I go to the website and there's five or six resources for me. So another hour and a half to put together show notes. Well, that, and thanks for mentioning that because, uh, we, we have to give the tip of the hat to, to Jackie Harmon, uh, who's on our staff for doing that. And she does that, uh, weekend and week out. Um, though actually the, 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 Today's episode, or this this week's episode, and the ones coming up, uh, I'm doing those uh, for the interim because because Jackie has just had a baby, so she's uh, taking some some time off. But uh, she's responsible for those excellent show notes usually. And people don't find out about the podcast without the marketing efforts and the outreach. And I certainly appreciate the social media um, approaches that you've taken. I I you know, I, any, any insights to how much effort strategically, are there any tips or tools that you've found to make that more effective? 
Well, that's that's kind of a team approach, um, primarily between uh, myself and, and Jackie. Jackie does our, you know, our tweeting and manages uh, most of our social media presence, um, and I'll do a lot through my accounts. I've actually found what tends to be very effective is LinkedIn for us because we have a, a, a good LinkedIn following. So, you know, putting it out there on LinkedIn tends to help. And then, um, and then to be honest, I mean, one of the things that we increasingly look for. Uh, not as a, certainly not as a primary filter, um, but as a factor in who we interview is, you know, do they have an audience and are they willing to share this? Because um, we want this stuff to get out to the world, you know, so, you know, we, we make sure that whoever we have interviewed, that they know about it, that they know where the link is, and we encourage them to, you know, please share it. And of course, you know, that varies from interviewee to interviewee, but um, that's a big factor as well, how much, uh, how much they're going to share it with their audience. Yeah, and I know that, you know, I, uh, um, fortunate enough now for the last few years to be a manager of what is now an 11,000 person CME professional group on LinkedIn. And whenever I've really been moved by one of the podcasts, so this has happened at least six or seven times in the last few months, I've shared the podcast to that group and it gets fantastic um, feedback. And and so I I, I certainly think maybe as we'll, we'll circle back at the end to future goals, I feel like there are millions of people out there that that are are looking for exactly what you've created, and uh, and we'll see if we can maybe tackle some new approaches to getting the word out. But probably most people listening to this podcast may be interested in the effort and the goals and the origin story, but principally what you've created are ninety nine separate learning experiences, um, ninety nine separate topics but they're in certain themes. So as we move into the second phase of today's podcast, um, maybe we can spend a little bit of time um, digging into what what each of you has found to be really the the essence, the, the, the essence of what you were trying to accomplish. And so the themes I think that we've identified um, uh, our leadership and marketing and strategy and technology and learning. That's, that's really the community and the brain power that you've built over time. So um, if we start with leadership, which one, you, which one of you wants to take the, the essence of what you've learned about leadership over the last 99 episodes? Well, I'll take that one. And um, the, the episode that comes to mind in particular is a, an episode with Marla Weston of um, the American Nurses Association. And what I talked about with her largely was um, this grand challenge. You know, so it's a large scale uh, initiative aimed at social change. It's called Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation. And what they're going to do is they're really trying to change and improve the health of the entire nation by really looking at um, improving the health of the 3.6 million registered nurses. And and what I find really fascinating about that uh, initiative is that I feel like ANA is really trying to um, use learning as an agent of change, that they're really uh, setting out to impact and in you know, their entire profession. And I think that uh, what we see in so many um, organizations that we work with is that's really the ultimate goal. It is impacting the entire industry or field or profession that they serve. And so you have ANA out there trying to do that. Uh, 3.6 million nurses being impacted by Learning. So, as I, the, this is one of my favorite episodes. So, as as Marla went through, explained this. I, I think the analogy she used was she has to find 
she has to push herself to stand on the edge of a cliff. Um, and, and she, she explained a little bit about, um, if I if I recall, there's a theme of the year that they used. And so they were able to connect those two things, the, the grand challenge and their theme of the year. Is that, is that how that went? That's absolutely right. And so I think that that's, it's, uh, there's both the simple, just sheer size of what they're trying to achieve. And then too, it's like how well connected it all is. So they take that theme and then that theme, you know, trickles down into things that might even be happening at, you know, at the Twitter level, just of someone sharing, you know, uh, you know, healthy breakfast recipes and that's happening via, via Twitter. So you have this huge scale of change that's happening, but the way it gets trickled down is very interesting because it, it basically translates into these small interactions. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that I think she emphasizes that, um, that they're doing is it's really focusing on the fact that, you know, these are nurses, they, they work in healthcare, they know what it takes to be healthy and yet they still aren't necessarily uh, engaging in the most healthy activities or the healthy eating that they could be. So, you know, it's, it's really this idea of, of bridging a knowing versus doing gap. And so I, I think, again, that plays out for so many organizations where when they're trying to, to work with learners it's not even so much about the fact that it's information that the learners are lacking, but it's really about how do they go about um, embedding that learning? How do they go about making those uh, life changes that, that really bring that learning to, to its full potential? Yeah, absolutely. I remember that moment when she said, these are nurses. We don't need to teach them about healthy behaviors. We need to teach them how to commit to healthy behaviors. So let's see, um, let's play an excerpt from that first podcast. It is all in the space of learning, but we were very clear right from the beginning that what nurses needed was not learning about what I would describe as the content. Um, So people didn't need to know how do I eat healthy, how do I exercise, or what's what's a correct exercise regimen. What they needed to know was how to fill this knowing-doing gap. So what are the factors that make change happen? How do people who really improve their health do that? And, um, and we recognize that part of what's important for us as we go through this process of learning and we teach our patients and clients is that we're honest that we're all also on this journey. And so how do you simultaneously convey to people the goal of ultimate health and knowing that you're personally not there yet, but that you're working on it? And how do we have those conversations? So that was really one of the big areas of learning. The second is how do we um, simultaneously utilize what I would describe as the traditional methods of learning. We've done uh, some webinars. We've just actually did a day-long retreat around this in one of the beta states. Um, But how do we embed learning in everyday activity? So how do we have, how do we use social media Mm. to help people learn about this and share their learning and share what's working and what's not working. Any other thoughts about a key nugget you took away from Marla? 
Well, I just really think that, again, what they're trying to do in that knowing versus doing gap really is like that's the nut that so many organizations are, are trying to, to crack. And, you know, if, if you can go out there and embrace large scale, uh, you know, change and really try to get at it that way, uh, there's, there's possibilities to really uh, be effective. Operating at the edge of the cliff. That's a great one. Um, okay, so our second theme for the day is marketing. And Jeff, do you want to do you want to walk us through um, the pearl that you found? Definitely. And so, you know, we we focus on marketing. We we're obviously called leading learning. The uh, the, the podcast is, but uh, you know, we have this whole framework for what it means to to lead learning. And, and part of that is that you do have to market effectively. You have to be able to get things out there and and convince people to engage with them uh, in order for any learning to to really happen. Uh, so, you know, we've had quite a few episodes on marketing. The one that that I really love, partly because it was a, a bit of a dream interview for me, but also partly because I think it really shows how marketing and learning tend to overlap, is an interview with uh, Robert Cialdini. And uh, uh, Dr. Cialdini, for listeners who may not be familiar with him, wrote a book called Influence back in the 80s. And Influence has had, appropriately enough, tremendous influence in in the world of marketing, but it really comes from the world of uh, social science and behavioral science. It's all about uh, how behavior is impacted by things that people do and how you can impact behavior. And so, you know, in, in a, that's what you're trying to do with marketing, and that book has certainly been embraced by marketers, but that's also what you uh, try to do with learning, obviously. So, you know, this is a, a dual-purpose interview uh, in a way, and the, the the clip that I want to highlight from that interview is him really talking about a a, a learning situation because it's kind of your typical meeting type in, environment. Um, but then he, you know, just makes it so clear that small changes, uh, you know, those nudges, as, as people hear in, in, in other contexts, can make such a difference in what's actually going to happen. And in this case, in a learning environment, but the same obviously applies in a marketing environment. So let's hear that excerpt. Well, I know your uh, your listeners are, are are often in the learning business. There are meetings and so on. Right. Well, here's the question: What music should they be playing for people as they walk into the room? What's the goal of the meet? It's not just oh, let's put an up tempo song to get people's energy up and get them, uh, you know, moving in a positive direction. No, no. Mm. What's much more precise than that? Is that meeting designed to produce a receptiveness to change? Is it designed to produce unity? Is it designed to produce uh, energy for achievement in the next quarter? What is... Well, you can choose a musical selection that's consistent with that concept and set a a frame of mind that makes messages that fit that concept more agreeable. So that's one thing we can do. Here's another thing. You know, very often when there's a there's a, a, a PowerPoint uh, presentation program uh, planned for a meeting. You know, we spend a lot of time. What do we put in that? What do we put in those uh, those images, those frames of that message? Here's my question: 
what's on the screen when people walk in the room? Mm. <laughs> there should be imagery that's consistent with not just the brand or the logo of the organization. No, with the goal of the meeting, right. in fact, of that particular session. So, I, you know, again, I love that because it's just, it's small stuff. You know, it's music, it's, it's what's on the screen. This, these are the types of things that any organization can do. You know, you don't have to have the high-powered marketing team uh, to make this kind of stuff happen. It's just being thoughtful about how you're trying to set the stage for whatever change you're trying to make, whether that's learning, whether that's uh, marketing. But we, we went on from here, and I'll, I'll cut to a little bit of a later clip in, in this same segment of the podcast because, you know, along those lines... There was a question that I really wanted to ask him that I, I knew coming into the podcast, I wanted to ask him having read Persuasion, And that was, you know, if you ask the right question of lifelong learners, can you actually kind of uh, persuade them to act life, like lifelong learners in a particular situation? And here's what Bob had to say. Often the purpose of, uh, say, an association meeting is to bring people together to learn. You know, they're, they're there to be educated, um, either formally or informally. And ideally, that organization wants people to walk out and actually have learned something, actually have retained it, actually do something in their day-to-day -day life. I mean, it's as simple as, you know, potentially posing a question or maybe it's, you know, flyers on the table or whatever uh, along the lines of, you know, do you consider yourself a committed lifelong learner or, or something like that? I mean, it's would that work? Is that... Uh, yeah. That would work. Do you consider yourself an admitted, a, a, a committed lifelong learner? It's, it, here's what happens when you ask that question. It sends people down a particular memory shoot, mm. right, where the target is times when they have been a committed learner throughout, and then throughout their life. They will, ha they will find those hits if they're in that room they will find the, those hits, and now they will be readied for information that's consistent with that side of them that's just been brought to prominence in consciousness. And so there you have it. All you have to do is ask people whether they consider themselves to be committed lifelong learners, and voila, you're going you're gonna to bring that out in them and potentially make any educational experience that you're putting out there that much more effective. I was taken in, in that interview that you did with him, I was taken by how ready he was to share evidence, hard data about the the persuasion effect and, and how you can architect a choice. This, this isn't soft science, and I think the two of you did a really good job at digging down into credible science um, that we can use. And many of us are engaging with very, very highly educated individuals, whether healthcare professionals or lawyers or accountants, and they're used to hard, credible science. And I just remember thinking it's a marketing story that he's telling, but it is it is so well anchored in the science of behavior change, behavior economics. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the the absolute volumes of, of research that uh, the Cialdini and his team have uh, have done and then published over the years is is really astounding. I mean, it's a great contribution to uh, social sciences and behavioral sciences. And like you said, it is it's hard data, so this is not uh, just fluffy stuff. All right, so we're two down. I think we have three topics to go. The next one up, um, I'll spin the wheel, and strategy is the answer. So uh, who wants to take the strategy conversation? I'll take that, Alex. 
Um, let's <laughs> see. So uh, for strategy, I wanted to talk about a, an interview that I did with John Mancini. He's a past president and CEO of the Association for Information and Image Management, otherwise known as AIM. And he currently bears the title of chief evangelist. Um, and as part of that, you know, he does a lot of writing and speaking and, and is certainly a thought leader in, in areas like information management and digital transformation. And and both of those are really big factors, of course, in um, the current learning landscape. And so, um, you know, I wanted to talk to him about that. And, uh, you know, he told the story, which I think we know all too well, which is that, you know, there's just been so much disruption in 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 the learning space over the past um, few years. You know, technology has come in, competition has gotten fiercer. You know, all of these things that that we know. But it was really interesting to get to talk to to John about it um, because he has such a um, a clear view of of content marketing. And I wanted to talk to him though about content marketing as it relates to uh, education because you know I certainly think there's a connection there that a lot of the best um, content marketing is uh, education driven. Um, and, and so this is what he had to say about that connection. You know, for us, you know, for everybody, marketing has always been this uh, one to many exercise. And, you know, we would broadcast out messages and they were pretty undifferentiated in how they uh, were communicated. And then we hoped that some fraction of people would hear them and they would come to us. And what technology has changed is that, you know, it's put the consumer of those messages in the driver's seat. And so they have to be, you have to be much, much more responsive to the needs of uh, uh, the listener rather than the uh, person actually um, making the broadcast. So for us, what's that that has meant is that we've really embraced content marketing and uh, particularly inbound marketing. Um, we use a product called HubSpot for that. It's been pretty transformative in our business in terms of thinking about how we interact with our members and customers. And what it's allowed us to do is really understand in a much more nuanced way what people are interested in, what the issues are that they're trying to deal with, and then try to adjust our product offerings, including our educational programs, to be responsive to that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, over time, I think, you know, that one size fits all just disappears. And, you know, you've, you've got like many, many markets of, um, of smaller pockets than you ever did before. So what I really like about um, AIM's approach that John's describing there is that, you know, it's it's both a very big picture approach to marketing, you know, really understanding your audience and, and what they already know and and what they need um, from what you have. And it's also very practical and, and detailed, you know, so you're using specific technology to really make sure that they understand how their members are engaging with those, you know, 11 different, um, you know, topics and technology clusters that, that they have figured out are, is the right fit for their audience. So I, again, it's a little bit like what we we're saying with, with Marla in terms of it's, it's this, you know, you have the big picture, you have the broad change that you want to see happen, or you have the broad understanding of your audience, but you also have to get down and be specific. You have to, you know, know what kind of, um, uh, your little Twitter, um, campaigns you're going to run, or you have to know what those 11 technology clusters are and be able to, to put it out there. So I think it's a great example of, you know, you have to be both uh, big picture, have the strategy and you have to be tactical. He, he used uh, at one point in that, 
podcast, he used a, a term I hadn't used before. It painted a picture for me about strategy. And certainly we had heard about Kodak and Blockbuster and even Uber and these large disruptions. He said at times to be strategic, you have to identify whether you put the toll booths that you have in place are um, on the right avenues or something like that. And that idea that we've been using these toll booths as, from societies and associations, this is how we generate revenue. This is These are the deliverables that we think our members want. And what, what happens if there's a new road that's built and all of a sudden people are circumventing you? Um, was was um, Mancini the one that had described uh, participating in a LinkedIn or a lynda.com educational activity? Yes, uh, he's um, done some content development for them, and yeah, and so I think that he was yeah talking about the just the you know again the sort of that's a different way of interacting with your subject matter experts, and maybe uh, associations should be thinking about that way of kind of uh, interacting and forefronting expertise and, and content in that same type of you know entrepreneurial kind of uh, and for profit sort of move that you have you know Alenda dot com um, in- engaging in. So, so to connect those pieces, it was like, what if we totally miss the reality? He had no idea that lynda.com had this super high production value. And he said, there's no way any association he's been a part of could ever do that. And so there's a toll booth that they've had in terms of creating content and uh, supporting professional development. And he said, a light switch could flip. And all of a sudden, that's no longer on the radar of, of association members. And so that I, I think that's how he got into that whole hub spot conversation around, we need to have a much greater ability to understand who our members are, even if they may not know who they are. Absolutely. You're a very good listener, Brian. <laughs> I'm a super fan. All right. So we are uh, three three themes in. The fourth theme, um, near and dear to my heart, and one that I think you have touched on in so many episodes and done so I'm, – I'm really not sure there's an episode that's gone by where this theme hasn't been touched on. But, um, Jeff, do you want to walk us through uh, a great takeaway that you've learned this year around technology? Sure. And this is, you know, with one that's also obviously near and dear to our hearts. We do so much with technology. That's kind of how we fell into this whole learning business in the first place as we got involved with e-learning back in the, the middle of the go-go 90s when uh, it was, you know, part of the dot-com boom. So we've been, we've been tracking technology ever since then. And, uh, and, you know, and we get involved with some pretty high-end, high-priced stuff. We do a lot of learning management system selection, uh, those sorts of things. But, what I really wanted to, to do in, in exploring technology on the podcast is to, along the way, find those places where you don't really have to have big technology to potentially have a, a significant impact on, on who you're trying to serve. And so, you know, for the episode, I wanted to highlight along those lines, it's the, the interview that I did with uh, Derek Warnick and Scott Kober at CME Palooza. So this is in, this is in your neighborhood, I guess, uh, uh, Brian. Um, they're in that CME space, continuing medical education. And they have this event, you know, that they started putting on years ago. And what I loved about it is they, they just, they didn't get bogged down with what the technology was going to be. They didn't, you know, have a huge budget to blow. Uh, they were able to do something that was, pretty simple in terms of the technology and really low cost. And uh, the, the clip that we'll roll here, 
basically has them talking about just that. You know, CME Palooza is a it's an online event. Um, they do a, a fall version and a, and a spring version of it. Um, but the whole thing takes place online with you know people delivering content online, people participating online, basically a, a virtual conference uh, of sorts. And in this clip, they talk about you know what that technology is behind it and you know what it's costing them to do this. We're sort of burying the lead here, though. I don't think we've even mentioned that this is all done by Google Hangouts. Mm -hmm. um, so every session that we do, um, again, sort of the impetus for this was I had been fooling around with it back when Google Plus, um, rest in peace, I guess we can say now since it's basically, I don't know, if Google Plus even still around? Then <laughs> Hangouts sort of are. But um, I had been fooling around with some Hangouts and realized, uh, again, at the same Alliance conference, uh, I, there was a colleague of mine who was getting ready to do a presentation up on the main stage and had someone who had helped him put his slides together and done a lot of work, but she was over in the UK and couldn't be at the conference and was expressing disappointment that she couldn't watch the session. And I thought, I could probably just do a hangout and use my laptop and she can watch it and did that. It was the first time I'd ever done any kind of a hangout and just, you know, had my laptop in the conference room. I realized later I probably should have asked someone first before I did that, but it all worked out <laughs> in the end. Um, and that was, at that point, I realized, like, I bet we could use these Hangouts to just do different sessions like this throughout the day, and people could, could tune in. Um, so we use a combination of, you know, our website is, we use a WordPress uh, website, and so we have a page where we, you know, every hour we put up uh, the next streaming video for the next session, and we go throughout the day uh, doing that. And you, you said, you know, that was uh, burying the lead to not say that. But another part of burying the lead is this is free. I mean, people, yes. people don't have to pay to do this, yes. right? That is correct. <clears throat> yeah. Go ahead, Scott. I interrupted. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, and I think that, that, that that's always kind of our one of our principal tenets is, you know, it's, it's free for anybody to watch. You can watch live. You can watch the archive version. Um, we have every session since, since Derek started this um, on his own in 2014 is up on our our website. Um, and, you know, not only is the conference free to, uh, to anybody who participates, but uh, we spend, I think, about $20 a year, um, 18, actually. $18. $18 a year. That, that, those are our out-of-pocket costs for the conference. So with mm -hmm. this, this is sort of a, a sort of, you know, a, a, a really a, a do-it-yourself conference from, from, from every perspective. And so as you hear there, I mean, this was not, they did not go out and, you know, license a, a huge learning management system. They have not spent, you know, millions of dollars. Uh, but, you know, I think within the, the niche that they are serving, this works extremely well. And they, they've had, you know, very solid reception for CME Palooza. You know, and then they have a lot of fun with it, too. I mean, they're, they're, they're creating learning. They're connecting with people, um, having fun at the same time. And again, you know, not blowing a lot of money or, or staying up late at night worrying about their technology. And, uh, you know, I just really like that as, a, as an example of what technology makes possible with, with learning these days. Yeah, I've known Derek and Scott for the better part of a decade. Um, I was fortunate enough to be the first presenter on the first ever CME Palooza. Um, you cannot meet two uh, more invested individuals in trying to, uh, from their own passion, their own um, hab uh, hobbies, they're really interested in trying to figure things out that 
in the past would be a committee and a society and a, uh, a, a diverse group of stakeholders. And they'd spend eight or nine months putting something together and, you know, they're operating within old pricing models. Um, $18 was the cost to That's run right. the first year worth of CME Palooza. And they've now got, uh, probably close to a hundred different sessions. In fact, um, I've lost track now in terms of the number of CME Palooza conferences, but October 18th, 2017 is the fall conference coming up and That's right. it's free and they they really try to they they try to provide the community with not only accessible education but accessible opportunities to teach. Right. No one, no one really gets turned down. It's a, it's a community, um, almost a consensus of what makes it onto the agenda. And while inexpensive and accessible, I think if I recall, Scott and Derek both admitted that they don't, they don't have great metrics. It's not a full service LMS that you can get for $18 through WordPress, but in terms of creating content and getting it out and, and putting it in the hands of individuals who are lifelong learners, it just, I, I've known it for a long time, but I think you did a great job in that interview um, revealing who Scott and Derek are and what they're trying to accomplish. Well, and the thing I would want to add about them, and this you know, uh, builds off of your comment about their passion, you know, I put this in the technology category, but this could just as easily go in the leadership category. I mean, these guys are leaders in, in their particular uh, arena. And, you know, and it was because they were simply passionate about it. They cared about it and they looked at what technology could do for them and they did it. And that was that. And, and not lost on either one of us is the fact that, as Scott did mention, they've grown this to the point where they now are bringing on sponsors and they now are generating revenue and their costs have not gone up significantly, but they may be bringing in four or five figures um, per occurrence of CME Palooza now because they have sponsors for uh, the text line and they have sponsors for the question line and they have sponsors for the lunch symposium and the breakfast symposium. And so what was grassroots and was a passion um, play for both of them has has turned into something a little bit more. Another, I think, great takeaway of what technology can do for you. And Scott did mention that Derek is now driving a Corvette. So uh, obviously a lot of success there. (laughs) I, I will mention um, Derek did just buy a snowblower off of Craigslist last night. So, I mean, he's clearly using the money. Clearly rolling in it, yeah. <laughs> off Craigslist. Um, okay, so we've got four topics down. And the fifth topic for this uh, this episode, uh, I imagine we'll go back over to Salisa. Um, leading learning podcasts, our fifth theme is going to be learning. That is right. And so I wanted to highlight an episode that I did with Julie Dirksen. She wrote the book called Design for How People Learn. Uh, She's a learning strategy consultant, an instructional designer. She has lots and lots of experience um, trying to figure out the right um, educational and learning experience for different situations. And, And I found it really useful to hear her really talk about, you know, what it takes to have some effective instructional design as part of an educational experience, and um, and she really is well aware of the of the science kind of you know behind instructional design and also behind behavior change, um, and and I think that's an area where she's begun focusing more in, in recent years, and um, 
one of the things that she brought up during uh, the, the course of the interview, there was a lot of very useful practical stuff, but one of the things she highlighted was, was a problem. One of the big challenges that I think we have altogether in any kind of learning endeavor is getting effective feedback on what's working and what's not working. Um, mm. And it's a tough problem because a lot of times we're teaching things that um, are going to have a very diffused impact in the system. Um, they're not going to be immediately visible. You know, if um, if it's something that, you know, if it's a really visible behavior, so I'm teaching people to wear their safety glasses when they go on the factory floor, then I can just kind of go out and I can be like, people wearing their safety glasses, they are great, you know, and it's very visible and I can go head count or whatever and, and you know, know, yes, it's working or no, it's not working. Um, but most things aren't quite that obvious, especially, you know, with professional organizations, you have this sort of ongoing professional development and then it becomes this sort of big question of what are we doing that's really effective? and what are we doing that's not so effective. And I do think that that's an essential component of any uh, field or discipline getting better is getting really good feedback on, on things. You know, I mean, I think there's a reason why a lot of instructional technology, a lot of e-learning stuff doesn't look that different now than it did 10 years ago or even 15 years ago. I mean, I got started doing e-learning in kind of the mid nineties, um, cause I'm old, but, um, uh, <laughs> been doing this for a while in the mid nineties. And, um, uh, we were doing some really kind of interesting, um, you know, interactive stuff in that was running on CD-ROM. And then, you know, then the web came along and we sort of were like, well, how is it to run on the web? So we can't do anything too complicated, um, so we made it all simple, and but then like you know, tools like Flash made it possible to do more complicated things on the web. And then mobile devices came along, and we're like, well, at least run on phones and every mobile device. And so we made it all kind of simple again. And so we kind of seem to be stuck in a cycle of um, uh, primarily information delivery as the thing that we're trying to do with a lot of learning experiences. Um, which has led us to believe and has led us to believe that a lot of the web-based solutions to learning are about chunking information nicely and sending it out to people. But um, if you think of information um, as the primary building block of learning, that's probably very logical. But if you think of the primary building blocks of learning as things being like trying stuff and getting feedback mm -hmm. or um, being able to see examples of good uh, good instances or of any of those kinds of things, um, then all of a sudden, you know, your learning design probably changes a bit. And uh, then you, you know, then suddenly the information delivery kind of formats don't, don't really, you know, completely satisfy or meet the need. And so I, I think what Julie points out there is that, you know, it is really hard sometimes to understand the, um, the, the impact that our learning is having. And yet it's so crucial to try to understand that, uh, the impact that that learning is having. Um, and, and it's, it's a nut that we really do have to crack. I think I already used that nut and cracking a metaphor earlier, but I'm going to come back to it because I do think that's um, just this idea of how do we know what we're doing is effective learning? How do we know what impact it's having on the individual learner, on the larger organization in which they're embedded, you know, on society? Figuring that out and understanding that is really important. And, and often, um, as, as she 
points out too that it's it's not so much about focusing on information delivery, and this goes back to something Marla Weston said too. You know, it's it's not that we just have to tell people, you know, this is the truth or this is what needs to be done. It's about helping them actually start doing what needs to be done. So it really is about that behavior change um, and that being such a critical part of, of learning if you're really going to lead learning and it's going to have that impact. I, I was fascinated by this episode. I, I've known of, um, in fact, I can guarantee you that this is like a three tweet walk that morning that I was listening to you interview Julie um, because she she used the words nudges and choice architecture and she connected, as you said, so many of the dots to things that Marla and others had said before that. Um, but there is this essence I'd never heard in 15 years of educational design and, and educational entrepreneurship. I'd never heard anyone deconstruct what an objective is the way she did. So she's saying, I'm not sure how we measure it or impact in this challenge that we have. And she just took a simple objective um, off the top of her head. I think she was like uh, prepositions in Dutch. Like, can I do it? Yes. Can I measure if someone can do it? Yes. Is it really important in the real world for someone to simply recite every preposition in Dutch? No. And so if we continue to have these objectives and focuses, foci of our education on things that don't mean anything in the real world, then we'll continue to continually miss, miss the target. Um, remember that? that kind of the essence she had there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I very specifically remember the Dutch prepositions because it's, it's so great. I think that too often we can see organizations get caught up in sort of the, the trappings of instructional design and, you know, and you can focus a little too much on, you know, the perfectly crafted, perfectly worded learning objective. But to her point that, that you're sharing here, you know, is it a valid, is that really something you want someone to be able to do, you know, it's fine for it to be measurable and demonstrable, but does it matter? Is there any value in it? I, I, and I think she, she apologized for being overly cynical a few times on that interview. And all I could think is sister preach, (laughs) just keep preaching. (laughs) All right. So we've gone through each of the themes, five takeaways over 99 episodes. Um, I hope I know the answer to this question. The 100th episode is not going to be the final episode. Will there be a 101st episode? It is, it is already in the can. So yes, indeed, there will be. Okay. So can you, can you help us see the future? What's, what's the leading learning podcast look like starting tomorrow? Starting tomorrow, it's probably going to look similar because uh, we we'd already done some recording before uh, we had this conversation with you and, and put sort of our future lenses on. But but as we roll forward into September and October and beyond, uh, you know, we definitely want to really dig in and, and, and see how we turn this from what we think is a, a very good podcast. Um, we've gotten good feedback on it. Uh, you know, how do, how do we make it a great podcast? How do we make this something that is just to, to go back to Julie Dirksen, something that is just really valuable, that really matters for the people that, um, that we're reaching out to. So, you know, there, there are a few things we have in mind as far as that goes. Um, I mean, one is that we do want to think a little bit about who we are reaching out to and, and potentially trying to reach a little bit more broadly. We, just because of our history, have really thought of our audience as 
primarily being folks from uh, trade and professional associations, because and they do represent a a big chunk of the uh, that market uh, for lifelong learning, continuing education, professional development. But um, they're certainly not the the only group out there. And we, we tend to think in terms of, and, and have written and spoken quite a bit about their, their essentially being a, a third sector of learning. You know, we all do what we do in, in elementary school, that pre-K through 12 period. We all, you know, those of us who are fortunate, you know, get some form of, of higher education. But then, you know, that, that other 50 years when we're all out there in, in the workforce, and it's getting to be longer than 50 years now, that whole adult lifelong learning uh, uh, realm, we consider that to be kind of a third sector. And part of our mission is to, you know, to raise awareness of that as a, a sector of education um, and to, you know, uh, emphasize the importance of it, to, to get people to appreciate it more uh, as something that's, that's needed, that's, you know, absolutely, absolutely needed in, in uh, our global society these days, um, but also an appreciation for the organizations and people who are working in that market. So, you know, I think we'll probably start stretching a bit beyond thinking of our audience just as trade and professional associations. We'll be thinking about, you know, some of the, the companies that are out there doing Doing this, we had uh, you know someone on from, from Degreed, uh, the chief learning officer from Degreed, on a while back. You know they're a company that's out there doing interesting things in this lifelong learning market. There are a lot of you know training companies out there, uh, university continuing education departments and, and programs. So we want to think a little more expansively about sort of who's in, engaged in this whole third sector that we're trying to serve with the podcast, and that I, I think that'll help to shape you know who we interview, what some of the content is uh, going forward, and just you know how how we kind of frame things in, in the context of the show going forward. Episode 40, Kelly Palmer from Degreed. I remember that one as if it was yesterday. Okay, thanks, um, for, thanks for saving me on that. I was blanking on Kelly's name just as I was saying Degreed, <laughs> even though it was a wonderful interview. I enjoyed it very much. It was a great interview, and I think that was at least a two or three tweeter on my morning walk as well. We're, we're going to make um, that. We're going to make that a thing going forward to the three tweet walk. We're going to start monitoring that, and uh, whenever we hit a three tweet walk with an episode, we'll know we've done something right. They say you can't improve upon things that you don't measure, so there's a metric for you. Um, okay, so you've got uh, your audience. You're going to expand more accessibility. We're going to try to get this out in the into the arms of more and more people. Um, how about the the effectiveness of the podcast? How do we connect it to other things? How do we support the person on the other side of the earbuds? Yes, that is definitely something we want to do more with. Um, you know, Jeff mentioned earlier today that you know we've started adding a, a resource that we can point people out to as part of each episode and, and for us that was a baby step in this um towards this goal of trying to make the the podcast a, each episode kind of more um effective as a learning tool so you know we want to continue with those resources and then we want to start experimenting with some other ways that we might be able to do that um you know for example we have some ideas like maybe baking in um, some reflection questions uh, during the course of each episode and that becoming sort of a recurring uh, element or ingredient to each episode um, and and maybe offering up some suggested next steps in terms of, okay, so now that you've heard about X, you know, what could you go and do with it? Now that you've heard Julie Dirksen talking about, you know, in fact, effective instructional design, what does that mean? What are you going to go do with, you know, your staff instructional designers or your, uh, you know, your volunteer subject matter experts, that sort of thing. So really trying to get people to start to see the application of what they're hearing um, to their own work, their own life. 
you know, the, the technology of a podcast is great because it's available in so many different places. However, there is a there's a disconnect between the content and the action. And so, I mean, a lot of these things, there there isn't, as far as I know, there aren't great apps that allow you to, in the middle of my walk, um, set a note exactly at 33 minutes where uh, Elizabeth Engel was talking about her educational paradigm in episode 44, right? Like, I, so, so the learners, the the listeners, had a little bit of uh, a challenge to to move it through, which is why I started the tweeting while I'm walking thing. Because I'd get back in again, there'd be so many great things that I wanted to do, and I'd I'd forget them by the time I got in. Um, the leading learning uh, hashtag seems like it seems like that's that's something that you know you you promote the episodes, but maybe. And maybe there's listeners who are willing to help you do this. I, th- I think maybe this is something the community can help with. But during that week, during episode, you know, week 34, when you're talking with John Harrigan, maybe maybe that next week, people can use that hashtag um, to engage, to have more questions. And potentially, I, you know, just an idea, potentially even the person that you're interviewing for that week could participate in that Twitter conversation, extending, extending it beyond that, you know, 24 minutes or 35 minutes of that one podcast. Is there a way to connect the, the speaker back into the community and extend that learning experience? Yeah, I think those would be great. We've been, we've been fairly haphazard about the, the use of the leading learning hashtag, um, which has you know, mostly been, we, we haven't set that as a focus and, and, and been strategic at least about that part of things. So I think that is something we do want to get more strategic and focused about going forward. Uh, the hashtag, I think, is certainly an area we could do that. We've, we've experimented here and there with you know, different forms of community. Obviously, a, you know, a hashtag is a pretty loose and formal uh, approach to community, but, um, but we may try some uh, some more formal approaches going forward. We do have a, a, a modest community that we have together on LinkedIn uh, that, um, that we, we've not made as strong of efforts as we could to, to kind of loop into the podcast and connect those together. So that might be another area as well. And, and you've got my brain spinning now too about uh, you know, the creation of a, of a podcasting app that is actually really good for learning because uh, you know, I, like, I use Overcast and Overcast is nice and I think you can sort of tweet out to a particular part of a podcast pretty easily, but, you know, I'm thinking of like a, a Kindle type experience where you can take all the notes and search your notes and, you know, do all sorts of other stuff along with the podcast. It'd be great. To, uh, I don't know that we'll be the ones introducing that, but it'd be great to see somebody uh, introduce something like that going forward. Episode 45, learning engagement and the learning actions model with Brian McGowan would probably be a good place to start. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly all right. right. So, so at the end of every episode, I believe almost every episode that you've had an interviewee, um, you've ended with a question. Can you guys tell me what the question has been for those uh, first 99 episodes? Well, we have asked folks how they approach their own lifelong learning. So, you know, we're it's a leading learning podcast and we're talking to people and we're sort of making the assumptions that they're lifelong learners and so like to hear how they go about structuring that approach. And in almost every one of those conversations, the individuals have described using social media, trying to dedicate a habit or, or dedicate specific time to engage around lifelong learning. Um, once someone said, can I just tell you what I wish I would do? Because I'm not really good at doing what I actually do. Um, and so there's themes that have emerged. And after the 20th or 30th interviewee, 
those themes were pretty well established. So moving forward, if we if we acknowledge that in that collective 99 episodes, we have now at least 50 or 60 experiences of what learner, uh, leading learners, stakeholders, um, C-level individuals in many cases, how they embrace their own lifelong learning. If we, if we, if we button that one up and say we, we've learned enough about how leaders learn, um, where do we want to go? What's, what's going to be our sign-off moving forward? Well, we have a new question that we want to uh, roll out that, that still is obviously tied to, to learning, but we want to ask folks what their most powerful learning experience has been um, as an adult, so you know, kind of post-formal education. And by involved in, we, we mean that sort of is open for them if they have been in the facilitator or provider sort of role in that learning experience or them engaging as a learner. Um, but I think it will be interesting to hear um, what people have found to be particularly powerful. And of course, if they don't get into it um, uh, as part of their response, we'll, you know, we'll follow up with the obvious sort of, you know, why was that such a powerful learning experience for you? So as we wrap up the 100th episode, the celebration of 99 episodes of the Leading Learning Podcast, do the two of you want to be the first to answer the question, or do you want to be the first to ask the question? I'll be happy to take a shot at, uh, at answering it, though I realize because I, I was thinking about this a little earlier, I was pre-prepped, but, uh, but our, our interviewees will be as well. We tell them we're going to ask them this question so they have a little bit of time to think about it, but... Uh, I've realized now I'm thinking about it, I'm probably cheating a little because I was not completely done with my formal education. I still had grad school uh, ahead of me, though I wasn't uh, probably sure of that at, at this point. But this was after I'd finished my undergraduate uh, uh, education. And uh, I mean, I probably put um, lifelong learning into a, a number of different sort of categories of types of experiences that have been just tremendously impactful. And so, you know, for example, becoming a parent, of course, I think is, you know, incredibly impactful to everybody. And there are any number of experiences along those lines, or in our case, you know, we're entrepreneurs and starting companies. There's no way that you can't learn a lot from that. But uh, the other big bucket or another big bucket for me is travel and, you know, what happens when you travel. And uh, I think one of the most impactful learning experiences for me in traveling was the first time when I was, I think, 23, maybe 24 years old. And uh, myself and a friend took off and flew to Africa and landed in Accra and Ghana uh, late at night um, got off the plane and as the beginning of a much larger trip, spent a week in the middle of Ghana in a little town called Brimanasi Kuma. And, uh, you know, for a 23, 24 year old from kind of the middle class south of the United States to, to suddenly land in a West African country, no Google at that point, no, you know, no Google maps, uh, nothing to really guide you other than your own wits and to kind of have to figure it out um, and, and, to, and to go into this place where the first thing that strikes you is for the first time in your life, you are clearly the minority. Um, you know, you didn't look around and see other Caucasian faces at, at all. We were, we, were, we were the minority. And, you know, to, to realize in that experience just how truly diverse the world is, how absolutely different life is for other people than what we have experienced. And I think, you know, it, it probably came to mind right now just because of some of the obvious things that are happening in our country and, the, and the, kind of the closing of uh, the American mind, it seems, in, in many ways. But uh, for me, that was one of the most mind-opening 
eye-opening experiences that I'd ever had, and I think it's influenced my life, and it's come back to be something that I, that I think about again and again uh, uh, after that, that, that point. That's a pretty high bar to set. Salisa, do you want to be the second person to ever answer the new question? I don't think so. I think I'm going to beg off. I'm, I'm the consummate interviewer uh, rather than the interviewee. And so I look forward to posing that question to uh, the, the first. I think I'm going to first have my chance uh, in two days from now to ask that question of someone. All right. Well, I, I look forward to joining you guys in uh, maybe two years for the 199th episode and the 200th celebration. So thank you for the opportunity to interview it. And uh, thank you for all the learning that you've provided me over the last two years. Hey, thanks so much for listening, Brian, and for being here today and, and being a co-host. Yes. Thank you, Brian. It's been wonderful. Bye-bye. Well, we are both happy and a little bit sad to say that that wraps up the 100th episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. As we're exiting, we want to say thanks again to your membership. You can find out more about your membership and all it offers at yourmembership.com. To get show notes for this episode, just go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 100. And while you're there, you'll be able to get links to the various uh, episodes that we mentioned throughout this episode, the ones that uh, we referenced. You also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And, you know, we've been at it for 100 episodes. If you're not subscribed yet, we surely hope that you will now take the opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. We would also be grateful, as we mentioned at the outset, if you would take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, make this our uh, 100th episode present. Um, you can do that by going to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. We really do appreciate it, and we would love that gift from you. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast, and we'd like you to do this in the most dramatic way possible. In fact, if you'll get a video of you walking out the door of your office and shouting out, I love the Leading Learning Podcast, we will send you a Leading Learning Superfan mug. But short of doing that, if you just want to send out a tweet, go to leadinglearning.com slash share, or go to any other social network of your choice and spread the good word. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast, episode 101.